Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you very, very much. Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to have everyone in the same building, if just for the occasion. At least it's wonderful for me to see people from all the services. Normally, if I'm going to get to see people from the south, the center, the west end, and the east, I have to preach four times and do it over about 10 hours. Today, I only have to preach once, and we'll see how long it goes on for. Uh, It won't go on for too long. We've been talking the last few weeks a lot about the power of dreams. Let me just give you a few examples of the power of dreams. 1961, the American president said... In the next decade, let's put a man on the moon. At the time, that was an audacious, a remarkable, and extraordinary statement. But six months before 1970 dawned, Neil Armstrong actually stepped on the moon, and John F. Kennedy's dream became a reality. Andre Agassi is one of the very well-known tennis stars who has won Wimbledon. Next slide, please. When Agassiz was asked, uh, what was it like winning Wimbledon? His answer was this. He said, it was amazing. But what you have to understand is that I have won Wimbledon in my mind every day since I was five. I've walked out on the court, I've played the game, and I've received the trophy. He believed that the vivid nature of the dream helped propel him to become Wimbledon champion. Clearly, Vincent van Gogh, the great artist, believed something of the same. Just examples of his many extraordinary paintings. When asked how he did such remarkable pieces of art, he said, I dream my painting, and then I paint my dream. And this term, we're being shaped and we're being inspired by Abraham, father of our faith. He had a dream. One difference between his dream and Kennedy, Agassiz, and Van Gogh's dream is that this wasn't a dream he created. It was a dream he was given. And his dream was, or the dream that he was given was that he would become the father of millions and millions of men and women who over multiple generations would be an incredible blessing to every nation on the earth. And for his dream to come about, it required several things. It required multiple generations. You don't go from one couple to a nation of millions overnight. It took a long time. Secondly, it needed the coming, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who would open up this fountain of the love of God that could then get poured into the world. And it actually required generations after that, including you and me, this generation, to live out Abraham's dream, to ask, what does that mean for us? Every Christian church around the world has to ask the question, given Abraham's dream to be a blessing to the nations of the world, what does that mean for me and you? And our 2020 vision is a start towards answering that. New services to help bring God's love to more people, to bring him closer to others. A diverse church means it's a more accessible church to a wider variety of men and women. Growth in our spiritual effectiveness, working for the spiritual renewal, means more people find faith 
And a greater emphasis on cultural and social renewal allows our faith to contribute to the flourishing of the city. So the question we've been asking today, what would it look like if we did that for 20 years? Or Andy, in fact, Andy told me it was 20 years, but apparently during this morning, I don't know whether you spotted, but it got taken to 50 years. I look forward to being 100 years old and looking back at what Christ Church London has done. I love the question. However many decades into the future you want to take it, I love it for a number of reasons. I love it because it involves several of my greatest passions in life, following Jesus Christ and the people of this city. Putting the two together and imagining what can come seems to me a wonderful thing. Philippa and I are all in for this. But I love it too because a common mistake we make is to aim to do too much in too little time but to do too little in a much longer period of time. We overestimate what we can do in three years, but we underestimate what we could do in 20 years. And over the next few minutes, I want to imagine with you what might happen. What could we do if we were to work for this for 20 years? And as Andy said at the end, there will be an opportunity for each of us to say, I'm all in. Most importantly, with our hearts, many of us too will want to express that, I suspect, financially as well. But let's just ask then, let's go through cultural, social, spiritual. What would it look like if we were to work for the cultural renewal of the city? And by the cultural renewal, we're not just talking about the arts. We're talking about the values, the ideas that are unspoken, but that guide and shape our lives and the lives of millions of others in this city. What would happen if each of us determined that we would live and work in such a way to shape the culture around us? For the truth is, we are all culture makers. Well, let me give you a few examples of what could happen. Let me introduce you first to my friend, Ridian Brook. Ridian is an author and scriptwriter. And a while ago now, he wrote the script for the film Africa United. Some of you may have seen it. The story of three Rwandan children who decided to walk to the World Cup in Johannesburg and the scrapes and the adventures they got into along the way. Not exactly, though, maybe a feel-good film, but not exactly the sort of film that you would expect film critics to jump at. But here's what the Times said about it. They said that, or the, the... journalist said that at the press screening for the film, he said, I saw cynical critics who have not displayed displayed any sign of emotion for decades break down and weep. If this tale doesn't tug at your heartstrings, reader, you are already dead. It's a great film which takes you to the joys and to the, the realities of life, but it makes you feel alive. And I think our city could do with a lot more of that. But Ridian's follow-up to that was a novel. The novel was called Aftermath. To Ridian's surprise, it's taken off, been translated into 33 different languages. It's the true story of his grandfather's family going to Germany to help rebuild that nation after the Second World War. Accommodation, of course, is sparse because so much has been bombed and typically those who came to rebuild the nation got the German families to leave. They had to vacate their homes for those that were rebuilding. Unusually, what Ridian's grandfather did was no, he said he insisted that his family shared a house with the German family that actually owned it. 
And as he tells this story, he tackles some of the big themes. Personal forgiveness. Reconciliation between peoples that have been killing one another for years. Rebuilding nations. Themes which are relevant in every corner of the globe even today. Here's somebody who's got a wonderful gift. And he's using it for the renewal of the culture and the renewal of our hearts at the same time. But you may say, David, I'm no writer. I'm not a Ridian Brook. No, you may say, I'm a business person. Well, if you're in business, I hope you will be inspired. And I hope you might imagine what could happen in the future. As I tell you about Jesse Boot. Jesse Boot's father was inspired by John Wesley. And Jesse Boot's dad was bothered about the fact that the poor had little medicine which they could actually afford. He started a herbal remedies store. It was the best that he could do to help the poor of Nottingham and the surrounding area access something which might help them. Jesse took things further. Trained as a chemist. Aware of the chemist's price-fixing policy in the area to keep medicine costs artificially high, he just charged way lower, got into all sorts of trouble, and the poor loved him as a result. He then took on the doctors who set the price of prescriptions and reduced the cost of them by 50%, whilst turning his chemist, I wonder whether you've guessed its name, Boots, into a national chain. And with the profit that he made from that, he became one of the biggest philanthropists of the age. By 1930, he'd given away the equivalent of 100 million pounds to those in need and to charitable courses. Now, I'm, I understand not everyone is a Jesse Boot, but that is not the point. It's actually about asking what I can do. And if I had time, I could tell stories of students and homemakers and parents at home with young children and what they're doing in the space that God has given them. Maybe you're a new graduate this morning. You're thinking, it's going to be years before I really get to change things. Not necessarily. David Brooks is a well-known columnist for the New York Times and a university lecturer. A few years ago now, he wanted to write a book that he thought would be on decision-making and he asked one of his students whether they would help with the research. The book became a New York Times bestseller, but it didn't end up being on decision-making. It changed, and it became all about character, something I think you would agree is rather important for city life. Why did it change, though? Why did David Brooks' book change so significantly it was all actually because of the undergraduate or the new graduate who helped him with the research. Here's what he says in the acknowledgments at the back of the book. He says, under Anne's influence, it became a book about morality and inner life. She led dozens of discussions about the material, assigned me reading from her own bank of knowledge, challenged the superficiality of my thinking in memo after memo and transformed the project. I've stolen many of her ideas and admired the gracious and morally rigorous way she lives her life. If there are any important points in this book, they probably came from Anne, who, you'll not be surprised to know, happens to be a follower of Jesus. What could we do? What could different ones of us do if we worked for the cultural renewal of this city for the next 20 years? 
What could we do if we work for the social renewal? There's so much that I could say about this. So many more clever clogs, so many more home for goods that it would be wonderful to see. But I think it starts actually with a much more personal challenge than that. And the personal challenge is, what would it be like if each of us that followed Jesus and many other followers of Jesus in this city who decided that they would express care for those in need in their life? I've never met anyone who doesn't have someone in their circles who isn't in need. And the need may not be SATs years five and six as Emma is working with, but it may be simply loneliness. Or it may be just the stress of life and needing to talk with somebody or needing to be included on a night out. What could be done if we made kindness fashionable again? Kindness to those in need. I think it's actually a basic mark of disciples of the Lord Jesus. What could we do if on top of looking at the hundreds of us in this room today, what could we do if on top of that... Across our four services, we trust to become eight services in due course. We started to identify some of the biggest challenges that London has and seriously lean into those. If I had time, I could tell you stories of how the church has done that in different cities around this nation and made a very significant difference as well. What might happen if we were to work for the spiritual renewal of this city for 20 years At the heart of everything we do is a desire to introduce men and women to the life-changing power and love of Jesus Christ. If you were to go onto the broadcast section of our website, you would find a number of stories, a whole load of stories, of people who found Jesus Christ and his life-transforming power through this church. I read some of them in preparation for this during this week. They make for great reading. In one, an individual talks about no longer having to battle with the empty feeling. That all her friends continue chasing satisfaction through a whole array of activities, but that she has found peace through Jesus Christ. And that means she never has to chase that empty feeling again. Others who talked about finding a sense of purpose or meaning that they hadn't had before. Another who talked about having two unexpected experiences of the love of God while doing an Alpha course. Resulting in a total change of direction of his life. These people have started to discover life in all its fullness. This is what we have to offer. Contributing to cultural renewal, caring for the poor helping people find faith. Our dream would be that London would increasingly become a city that is thriving for all its people and that at the very heart of that is a thriving church, constantly introducing people to the author, the maker, and the creator of the whole thing. But is that it? We've actually said several times over the last few weeks that that's like getting us to base camp. One of the things we've said is don't overstretch ourselves by 2020. We want to be ready for a big climb beyond that. The truth is, too, the Christian faith is a, or the the Holy Spirit always takes us beyond where we expect to be. 
If you follow Jesus, you, just, you don't end up in one place. And he's always taking us beyond and to other places. And so we've started to wonder, maybe from 2020 we should be asking this question as well. What are the 10 most influential global cities for our children's generation? And what would happen if we could play a part in helping get churches and all the other things we've been talking about today started in those as well? Might that be a gift to the next generation? Global cities matter for a number of reasons. Firstly, because the world is moving to the city. Did you know that sometime in the last few years, mankind ceased being a rural animal and became a predominantly urban animal? And that, that is not going to stop anytime soon. By 2050, the projections are that two-thirds of the men and women in this world will be living amongst concrete. They'll be living in the cities. And that has massive implications for those of us that want to follow Jesus Christ. But global cities as well, not only will are the world moving to global cities, but if you want to be amongst the biggest problems in the world, and I would suggest that those of us that love Jesus, our goal should not be eventually the house in the Cotswolds, but should actually be finding the greatest problems in the world and looking at how the love of Jesus can transform them. He does take some people to the Cotswolds, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> well, maybe. I wouldn't know, but I'm just going to get myself in trouble. Shanghai, by 2050, is predicted to be 50 million people. 50 million, that's just under the size of the UK population right now. In Mumbai right now, there is sanitation for only half the inhabitants of the city. That means that not only is disease rife, but it is dangerous, particularly for women, just to live in that city. Global people are moving to global cities. They have the greatest problems in the world. They will have the greatest problems in the world, but also global cities will provide the greatest opportunities for spiritual renewal. Experts say that three of the things that are most likely to help people ask the big questions of life and find faith are firstly, breakdown of community. Who knows big cities are lonely? There's no need to respond, but we know what we're talking about there. The speed of change. These cities are changing at breakneck speed, so government and others cannot simply keep up with the infrastructure that is needed. And serious social problems also lead people to say there's got to be more than this. What will it take to make these cities flourish? The fascinating thing is this, that those who are skeptical about Christianity are starting to argue, actually, the best thing for these cities would be to have people of faith in the middle of them. Simon Critchley, the philosopher, has written asking the question, what will it take to make the sort of citizens that we need in global cities? We'll need people who are prepared to sacrifice for one another. Even, he says, even to love their enemies. Simon Critchley is in no way a man of faith, not a follower of Christ. He says that very reluctantly, he concluded that if you're going to have people who live like that, they have to be people of faith. They have to be people who believe in a God 
who causes you to live in that sort of way. Very significant scholars and government members of the Chinese government have been looking recently at what can make their, their, the cities in their nation and their whole nation flourish, including Xi Jinping, who's a member of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress of China. He doesn't anticipate that their nation will become Christian, but he does say, if we want to have tolerance, equality, justice, environmental protection, then the best options for us are not the mindset of Western secularism, but the mindset of the Christian faith. Nar Ferguson talks about this in his book, Civilization, and he quotes another of Jinping's contemporaries, and he says this, at first, when we looked at the Western world, at first we thought it was your guns that had made you successful. Then we thought it was your political system, your democracy. And then we thought it was your economic system, capitalism. But for the last 20 years, we've known it was your religion. So the extraordinary thing is, not only is there going to be great problems and great opportunities, but others are saying it needs to be something like the Christian faith at the heart of them. So here's the dream. And we're, we don't know exactly where the Lord will take us, but the dream would be that we get to start or get to be involved with starting churches in other global cities. Ones like this. Next slide, please. No, there's a map before this. Or There we go. Here we are in London. We've done a little bit of work, and I'm sure it will change, but here's, a, here's some ideas of the, ne of, of the ten, 10 of the most influential cities. The next one is Paris. Some of you might like to go and start a church in Paris in due course. The next one is Dubai. Oh, some interest there. <laughs> the next one is Mumbai. Not so much for Mumbai. The next one is Shanghai. Then it's projected that Seoul and Tokyo will be massive, global, shaping cities. Then we're down to Sydney. We'll have a few more people interested in Sydney. Then you go around San Francisco, Silicon Valley, New York, and back to London. Could we be involved in something like this? I was at a dinner this week, and I was sitting next to someone. We had to go around during this dinner and, and just express, introduce ourselves and express our passion. There was a lady sitting next to me. I would guess she was in her 50s. In other words, what she went on to say was not idle optimism or idealistic optimism. And when she was introduced, she said, if you want to really know me, you need to know that whenever someone says something is impossible, I get excited. And the more impossible it is, the more excited I become. I don't know whether that lady is a follower of Jesus or not, but I know that should be a characteristic of the followers of Jesus. Listen, our question this morning is, are you all in? Are you in? We're looking not for one, not for two, but a whole family of men and women who'll say, I am ready to give myself to this. I want to play a part in the health of this city and who knows where else in due course as well. Let me finish with one story and then we're going to have an opportunity to pray, commit our hearts, and for many of us, we want to commit financially as well. The biggest church in the world today is, is one that we saw very briefly. If we can have the slide up, please. But here it is in Seoul, Korea. It's filled many times over on a weekend. Estimates are of 800,000 people who attend that one single church. 
Many years ago, before that building was built, they looked like they'd run out of money whilst trying to build the building. Actually, at one point, the pastor literally went up to the top of a block of flats and thought, should I throw myself off? Have I done the most? You know, I'm in over my head, as Johnny said. He said, have I made a horrible mistake? And as he's standing there looking down, he feels the spirit prompt him and he said, call the people to pray. And he went down and he did just that. He called the people to pray. And as they started to pray, people started to make the most incredible sacrifice. There was one poor lady and she literally took what she had. She had a bowl and she had some chopsticks. And she went to the front as they were praying and she put them at the front. It was like, this is what I have to give. And as she did that, there was a businessman in another part of the auditorium and he stood up and he shouted. He said, I will buy that bowl and those chopsticks for $50,000. And he took the bowl and the chopsticks and he gave them back to the lady. And he gave them money. And the stories that have been told, that that was the point where everything changed. Not so much when the man gave 50,000, but when the woman gave what she had. She gave a bowl and she gave some chopsticks. Reminds you of a story in the Bible, doesn't it? The woman who just gave her might. And so, our question is, are you all in? Are you all in? Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.